Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for yet another hour of podcasting greatness here on YouTube uh, with uh, audio on Stitcher, Google Play, uh, let's see, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and wherever good podcasts are found. So this week, we are going to continue our discussion of the subject of Black Lives Matter. And this actually is my intention that this be my last full show on this topic, because I think this will sort of put the cap on everything I've wanted to talk about with it. I've had, you know, I started this with Dr. James Lindsay, uh, who gave us a whole rundown on sort of the back uh, history and ideology behind academia that has led to some of the beliefs and ideas that are at the, what I refer to as the ideological core of the Black Lives Matter organization, which is a very different thing from the protests and the fight for equal rights and all of that, which we see manifested in protests and social media with people talking and, and, you know, in terms of support and wanting to push the ball down the road to have, you know, a full equality of opportunity and equal civil rights here in the United States. There's been, I think, quite a bit of progress over the last couple centuries on this, and especially over the last 50 years with the civil rights movement and all of that. Um, Very, very important things. And a lot of social upheaval was necessary in order to make that happen. And have we accomplished the goal? No, we haven't. We still got a ways to go. And so it makes sense that people would step up and step out and want to do something about this. And I want that to happen too. However, being who I am and having the background that I do and talking about extremism and destructive cults and the kind of stuff that gets into people's heads and and where that tends to go, I've also had some issues with the organization of Black Lives Matter and some of their positions on some things. So, and, and maybe some of their goals and the way that some of this has been put forward. And I have tried to make those um, my ideas clear about that to, you know, one degree of success or another. <laughs> and so, um, so here we are. And last week I had Rick Lockhart the second on, and he and I had a great chat about his views and his experiences as a black man growing up in Chicago. Uh, he's a you know a professional in the restaurant industry and a podcaster now and, and YouTuber. And, um, and I thought we had a fairly productive conversation. It was certainly interesting for me, and I think it was interesting for him, hope. So uh, this week, uh, like I said, to sort of put a cap on this and also to try to present, um, I, you know, I don't even want to say necessarily both sides as though there's only two sides to this, because it's really not that simple. This is a very nuanced and, and, and you know, deep topic. But in order to present some other views about it, let's say, I've invited a man named Adrian Lee Oliver onto my show. And I actually found him through Twitter. And he put a thread out, I think it was on June, yeah, June 28th. And this really caught my eye. And going through his Twitter feed and seeing, you know, the things he has been saying consistently, I, I thought, you know, this is somebody who I have a lot of common ground with. And so I reached out to him and we sort of conversed via Twitter. And I said, hey, why don't you come on my podcast? And he 
Agreed. So, Adrian, welcome to my show. Thank you for having me on, Chris. You're very welcome. I think this will be interesting. Um, I wanted to first let the audience know a little bit about what I read that interested me in you and invited you onto my podcast. So let me just read a couple of the beginning parts of this tweet thread that you posted that, that I thought was so interesting. You said, in the same way that it is said that the Trump presidency has politically polarized every corner of discourse in America, it is clear that these national protests, largely attributed to BLM, are racially polarizing every corner of our nation as well. Before I say anything else, I should say that it would be difficult to find a person who wants effective police reform and genuine racial equality and justice in America more than me. I've been a victim of extreme racism and police brutality many times in my life. I am, of course, preempting the predictable rebuttal from the cleverest of those who don't want voices like mine represented. They will say, even if what you're saying is true, it is inappropriate to try to distract from the anti-racism movement in this way. Though this retort was designed specifically to silence anyone who disagrees with the main narrative, I've seen it used in ways and places I happen to agree with, I'm afraid that unless people at large start thinking about the issues I'm trying to bring up, there won't be a movement or narrative left worth protecting. And I'm going to link to this entire thread in one go, so you don't have to be on Twitter in order to be able to see this. So, Adrian, you then go on to elucidate quite a few things in terms of some criticism about Black Lives Matter, you know, the movement and where it's going and, and, and what your fears about that are. Would you care to now share that with the audience here? Yeah, I think uh, the first and most important thing uh, to point out is that uh, I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm not someone who has spent a great deal of time uh, in research on, you know, uh, critical race theory, all these different things. Uh, it was just a, a fit of inspiration where I was witnessing in my own social circles uh, a lot of disturbing um, ideas and concepts bubbling up in conversation from people who I've known my entire life and other people who I've known extended through acquaint uh, by acquaintance. And uh, I felt like there was nobody talking about this. And I didn't know how wrong I was, actually. Uh, uh, it wasn't until after this thread sort of blew up the way that it did that I became familiar with people like yourself and James Lindsay and people like uh, uh, Benjamin Boyce and uh, Helen Pluckrose, you know, the whole gaggle of uh, people who have the crew, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they've been uh, they've been doing good work on this and uh it was just i felt like it, somebody needed to point these things out uh little did i know they had been doing this for a while uh so when i wrote this it was in complete ignorance uh of uh, of the fact that there were other people uh, uh other very serious thinkers who were doing this but uh i was just trying to send a signal out into the world and say hey if anybody sees this and it was only supposed to be seen by a select few people uh, uh, and uh, just start thinking rationally about where these ideas are headed. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, with that being said, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've basically been sitting back uh, uh, and just observing um, the way that this movement has sort of become radicalized from, from the inside. Uh, and then I started to focus a little bit more on the specific ideas that were responsible for some of this conspiracy thinking and uh, irrationality. And 
as it pertains to the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm having a lot of trouble distinguishing uh, where the movement begins and, uh, and where the organization ends. And uh, I think that's sort of deliberate. Uh, it's sort of that, uh, I think Brett Weinstein uh, tweeted something out about the boat mainly tactic uh, uh, or uh, moat Bailey <laughs> tactic. Where, uh, I saw that it, this morning, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a fascinating uh, rhetorical de uh, device that can be used uh, when you uh, you're sort of sheltering uh, the extremists within your own group uh, by distancing yourself from them, but at the same time sort of using them as a, uh, a bulkhead or something to protect your movement and allow this sort of synergy between radicalism and then the, the, the more conservative or uh, uh, intellectual facets of the movement, right? So I was noticing all of that, and uh, I, I just felt like uh, somebody needed to try to distill it down into a, a version where people could possibly uh, make sense of some of what we're witnessing. Yeah, exactly. And I'll, I'll reiterate an analogy that I have used, and, and maybe uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this particular subject, probably not a whole lot, which is totally fine. Um, it's very, very fringe, but I was involved with the Church of Scientology for decades. And in fact, the whole reason I have a platform is because I got out myself out of that situation and then started talking about it. And um, and I've spent the last seven years just, you know, diving down the rabbit holes of how extremism happens and how cults yeah. happen and what that's all about. And um, and those were, in fact, it was those kind of markers of a sort of authoritarian kind of mindset that I saw with the Black Lives Matter organization years ago, before yeah. all this before even came up, before George anybody knew George Floyd's name, I had spoken in support of the organization and the movement because I wanted the equal, you know, civil rights. Definitely. But I started seeing, you know, when I went to their website, and this was right after the Trayvon Martin incident, after Ooh. that whole thing happened, I went to the Black Lives Matter website and started reading through the, you know, did the deep dive on the manifestos and the ideas and, 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 or, and goals that they had. And I thought to myself, you know, there's some things here that make me a little uncomfortable. Um, and I don't think are yeah. going to be pushing the ball of civil rights down the road. And I didn't make a big deal about it at the time. I just thought, okay, well, that's, that's not so great. And the analogy that I make is that the Church of Scientology is pretty well known at this point for being a very toxic group of, of people who uh, practice some pretty weird stuff have some pretty weird ideas, but the beliefs are not the important part. It's the stalking and the harassment and the, you know, the, the criminal activities that that organization engages in, in an effort to keep itself going and uh, make money and, you know, sort of feed like vultures off of its membership. Those, those are the reasons I speak out about Scientology, not because of its crazy beliefs. I don't, yeah. who cares about Xenu, right? Right. So in a similar way, um, the Church of Scientology has one of the best propaganda setups with human rights. It, it has this whole setup with, with an educational setup for teaching kids about human rights using the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is something that came out of World War II. Okay. And it's a great document. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is wonderful. And the promotional material and the educational material that Scientology 
of all the groups in the world to put out about human rights is actually really good. So you can jump on board of the human rights end of that and then find out it's coming from Scientology and go, wait a second, what's <laughs> going on here? This is a really good thing, but we know Scientology is not so great. And yeah. I see similarities here. I'm not saying it's the same, same, same. I'm saying it's my, the reason for my concern is similar in that you have a front message, a, a public, yeah. visibly, you know, very agreeable message, very agreeable, very necessary message. But behind that, maybe there's some things happening that aren't so good. And you wrote, um, as in continuing your, your tweet thread here, you wrote, in observing the current zeitgeist, I'm seeing trends and ideas that I believe are going to undermine our collective ability to bring these noble goals to fruition. Yeah. Half of the people are blind to these trends, completely unaware they're aiding and abetting hateful machinations. Yeah. So what have you seen that made you write that? What was, where were you coming from on that? Well, I'll put a pin in that for just one second. Yeah. It was really heartened. Uh, after I, uh, we, we spoke on uh, Twitter and I uh, had our, had our uh, interaction, I started looking at your previous works. And uh, I, was, uh, I was really uh, uh, heartened to see that uh, we sort of share a similar background. I was also raised in a cult environment for the first six years of my life. Oh, uh, it was, it, it was more unofficial than anything, but it had all of the, the flavor of occult. And it wasn't until looking back in hindsight when I became an adult that I really realized uh, what uh, me and my siblings had experienced. Uh, I mean, all the way down to the poison Kool-Aid. So it was basically a situation where uh, my biological mother was a schizophrenic and uh, she had indoctrinated us with all of her delusions, uh, had us believing in the craziest things that you can imagine. Uh, and uh, it got to the point where she trained us to have this uh, uh, suspicion of all authority and police. So we were raised to just completely hate the police. We were raised to have uh, a reflexive uh, uh, um, disdain for authority. Uh, and we were indoctrinated with all of these just insane beliefs that you can't possibly imagine. Uh, and eventually, whenever uh, it got down to the point where we were going to be removed from her custody... Uh, she did try to kill us a couple of times. Uh, 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 yeah, so um, it, it was this crazy cult uh, sort of uh, uh, cult of uh, family uh, where she was the charismatic leader and you would have had to know the woman to know how someone could simultaneously be that disturbed and that alluring at the same time. And I imagine that's something that uh, uh, you can relate to dealing with the, the leaders of your movement, how these people who can be so twisted can also demand so much attention and, and sometimes reverence. Uh, so uh, that's sort of where the beginning of my thinking on this stuff comes to. I, I, whenever I see uh, uh, a tendency for people to be thinking about a situation unclearly and blindly, uh, I, I think there's something to be done in that situation to sort of elucidate how you can see this in a way that is a little bit more riding the rails of reality, right? Uh, so when I'm talking about uh, uh, the stuff that you just read from uh, those posts in that thread, uh, what I'm noticing in my personal life is uh, I'll speak with, you know, my black friends and black fr family, and uh, we'll be having these conversations where uh, they are sort of giving lip service to the most maniacal and revisionist sort of uh, uh, narratives of history about uh, 
how uh, what actually happened in slavery. It's down to the point where they're denying uh, uh, just statistical sciences uh, to the point where it's uh, they believe things like actually black people and people of color are the racial majority in America. It's just that white people have altered the statistics to have us in this sort of mental uh, prison where we think that we're outnumbered. Uh, and th these are the sort of things that are just sort of spreading like wildfire through the black community where it, we're giving ourselves permission uh, as, as, as black people to sort of uh, enact a, a coup of virtue in a way where anything that calls into question or brings nuance into the conversation. Uh, for example, one of the big things that uh, we're running into in uh, the black community is a lot of people are denying that. Uh, so if you're familiar with the history of slavery, it started off with uh, uh, deals being brokered between uh, Europeans and uh, uh, West, West African uh, chiefs and lords. And they were actually sort of brokering deals to sell people into slavery. And there was this sort of business deal uh, transaction between uh, these two groups. That whole history is being denied that uh, black, because it makes it, it makes it complicated. And they don't want co complexity. They don't want nuance. They want this to be out and out that black people are completely blameless and victim, uh, just complete victims from the start to finish, right? Uh, so there's there's no room in the conversation when you're talking to some of these people who I, uh, I've been talking to, uh, to to bring up the fact that, well, there's more going on than what you're saying. And that's actually anti-historical to say the things that you're saying. You can't have these conversations in any sort of lucid way with a lot of the people who I'm encountering. Uh, and so that that's 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 a problem. <laughs> that's a problem when when you cannot uh, talk about reality on the same terms and uh, people are denying the actual narrative of history as recorded by former slaves, uh, you know, uh, by uh, uh, people who were there in the times who were uh, uh, abolitionists and uh, anti-slavery. Uh, these words are now being doubted too because they are in contradiction to this new narrative that uh, uh, there's some sort of uh, moral superiority uh, in the black community. Uh, and we can get into this sort of uh, concepts that are propping that up. But um, I, I just cannot abide that sort of uh, twisting of reality. I hear you. I've definitely been there, done that. It's, and it's that kind of thing that gets you, you know, I, I didn't realize that we had a shared cult history, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, and it doesn't surprise me only because um, it, it, it's, it's an unfortunate circumstance. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone to no. be stuck under the thumb of, you know, a, a crazy authoritarian type personality or a narcissist. But it opens your eyes to things that you can't ever really close them to. It does. You know, and, uh, and it sounds like you you had that experience as well as I did. And it's, yeah. and it's a, you know, and if you and if you walk away from that experience and 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 spend even a little bit of time trying to learn about why that kind of thing happens. You don't have to do, you know, huge deep dives like I've done, but you know, yeah, yeah. just a little bit. You start noticing it's kind of all around us in a way. And it's really just yes. a matter of of spectrums, a matter of how degree, you know. Well, so my Zenu moment, uh, we eventually were removed from the custody of our biological mother. And uh we were placed in uh emergency shelters and foster homes, uh trying to figure out exactly what to do with us now that we were ward of the state. And uh, I remember uh, just being ridiculed out of my beliefs. So we would represent in, you know, mixed company that 
uh, my siblings and I, that we believed in the Loch Ness Monster and Shadow Ninjas and Leprechauns and, uh, you know, all these different that uh, uh, you, you wouldn't believe the things that this uh, woman indoctrinated us with. And uh, uh, we literally used to travel the country uh, in search of these cryptids and these, uh, uh, you know, we were homeless my entire childhood, just roaming around nomadically from uh, one shelter in Miami to Portland, Maine to Los Angeles, California, all over the country. And the primary motivation for my mother was, uh, well, two things. One was to avoid the authorities so they couldn't take us from her. And two, we were out there just aimlessly searching for Bigfoot and whatever other cryptid that her delusions had convinced her we might come across in these ventures. Uh, but the Xenu moment for us was uh, just colliding with um, uh, uh, the culture of uh, the mainstream where everybody else just saw these things as patently ridiculous, right? They immediately, and without any you know, compunction or shame, just ridiculed us until we finally got the point that here we are in this situation where, for me, six years of my life, uh, I'd been taught complete fiction for my entire foundation of my, my worldview. And once you've had that happen to you, uh, and uh, it is a shame and so, somewhat bittersweet that it had to be such a nasty, you know, nightmarish shit show of a childhood uh, that gifted me with the ability to sort of see these things. It, 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 uh, it immediately makes you a skeptic. The moment that you have seen that it's possible to be wrong so completely about everything that you believe, uh, it, it, it makes you take the prospect of believing anything else much more seriously, right? And yes. you're, uh, yeah, you, you, you approach your relationship to information, uh, to uh, authority, to uh, uh, documents, media, in a completely different way. And what I am reacting to in the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the uh, anti-racial movement at large is a complete absence of what I would consider that sort of approach to thinking. It is blind faith in uh, uh, ideals that have not been interrogated by the individual, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it is, as, uh, as we've said, uh, something that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. But coming out of that scenario, it sort of arms you with the ability to um, approach your intellectual life with a little bit more rigor. Exactly. I wish I could say that everybody who comes out of these situations has that kind of epiphany. Yeah, yeah. And the door is open. It doesn't guarantee you're going to walk through it. No, it does not. It's uh, it's a little sad, actually. It's, it's a little bit of a statement of the human condition that we are so desperate to believe things that, and maybe "desperate" is the wrong word, but you know, there. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to, you know, just like ridicule and castigate all human beings, but it's just it. We have this thing, you know, and we want to believe these things that are really kind of unbelievable and a little silly, you know, and yeah. we just kind of go in that direction. But there is a certain percentage of us who have this experience and go, I am never going to get taken for a ride again. I'm not going to let that happen to me yeah, ever that again. That was my reaction. Yeah. And that's, and I think we have that in common and I, I find that fascinating. Um, so let's, so let's get into some specifics here because um, we're talking a bit broadly. So what sort of things in your community in life have you run into that, got your, that sort of got, were red flags for you or made you go, hmm, something's not right about this? Uh, immediately, I remember, it must have been 2015, 2016, 
the first time that uh, Black Lives Matter uh, popped up on my radar. And it, it was literally the moniker itself that was my first red flag. Uh, I, I remember very distinctly thinking, well, this, this is going to end great. Uh, uh, just in my opinion, and I know that this is not something that you can really say in mixed company these days, but defining a movement uh, in a way that's inherently divisive, right? Uh, and I, I understand there is some utility and there, there might be some value in getting people to say Black Lives Matter just as a, a show of solidarity or some sort of a, 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 an exercise in uh, unity, I guess you could say. Uh, but this issue that Black Lives Matter has sort of uh, sprung up around of uh, police brutality, it isn't one that's central to any particular race. And I take issue with the way that it has been presented to the black community at large, where uh, it's a manipulation of the statistics for the purpose of sort of focusing on this one community. Uh, and that's all well and good. Uh, I, I think that insofar as the rates of occurrence do reflect that maybe black people are in fact being sort of accosted at higher rates, then uh, uh, th there is something to be said about that. But the moment that I realized that this was going to be made an, a racialized issue instead of a, a larger um, uh, issue about why is it okay that the American people are being brutalized by the police to the effect where I think uh, someone says uh, the police are responsible for more murders uh, of citizens every year, not just unarmed, also justified. Uh, but then uh, I think most of the, uh, all of the organized crime uh, in the country, I believe, is the statistic. Uh, and that's a baffling thing to uh, sort of consider that we as citizens are sort of at the mercy of uh, this system that is somehow doing a lot of harm to, to the citizens of the country. Uh, uh, and there seems to be very little accountability for that. So uh, it troubled me from the very beginning that they were calling it Black Lives Matter. Uh, I, I understand the symbology. Uh, I understand that all lives matter is not an option. Uh, at this point, it has been tainted with, you know, uh, this uh, a sort of uh, symbology that it is a refutation of the idea that Black Lives Matter. And so that's off the table. But I would have been a lot happier to find this movement being something that was more inclusive and not immediately um, central, uh, centralized on a, a single racial identity as the... Uh, uh, the focus. So that's, that's where I started immediately. As soon as I heard that they were calling this black lives matter, uh, I, I had issues with that, that, uh, have seemed to be vetted out. Uh, it, it, you see that, uh, people are defining themselves in opposition to that very concept without considering how the larger, uh, issue should be uniting us all. Right. Uh, a, a lot of the, uh, alt-right and white power and all these people that they are finding cause to, retaliate against and uh, take up arms against uh, uh, the uh, concept of Black Lives Matter when that's not what, the, what we're doing. We're talking about equality and police reform and all of these uh, police brutality, but somehow it's become this racialized issue. And I think that was something that you could predict from the outset when this, uh, when this moniker was chosen for uh, the, uh, the, uh, the emblem that we were going to Marching. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people tend to see this, and not in not completely incorrectly, Ooh. as a counter movement or counter push to the sort of Aryan nation neo Nazi bullshit that goes mm -hmm. on. Right. 
you know, we see Charlottesville, we see, you know, the, the Illinois Nazis, you know, and it goes all the way back to the blues brothers. You know, I hate Illinois Nazis. These, you know, these guys who really take themselves way too seriously, you know, and, and talk about, you know, wanting to incite a racial war, which they want. And, you know, these are real people and they, and they really are, you know, dangerous. And so you look at that and you go, well, that's nuts. Yes. And so here's a counter movement and you go, good, I I can get behind that. Mm. Now, this kind of leads us to, I guess, my next question, which is, um, and you quoted uh, Booker T. Washington in your Twitter thread here. Let me go ahead and read this quote and then we can sort of, I'm curious how you came to this, to this and how, and how you've seen this. He says here, uh, quote, There's another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs, end quote. So that's, that's, that's not my words, Booker T. Washington, and yeah. you quoted it in your thread. And so what led you to, you know, look into that and, 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 and say, hey, there's something here to be looked at? Well, first of all, uh, it's always uh, a good occasion uh, to quote Booker T. Washington if you Agreed. have the opportunity. <laughs> um, uh, secondly, I think... Um, my personal experience within the black community uh, has uh, put me in close contact on many occasions with uh, exactly the sort of people who that quote is attempting to identify, right? Uh, so there are people who have a genuine concern for uh, the racial atmosphere in America, and they're trying to uh, achieve some sort of a um, sophisticated, uh, 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 nuanced uh, accounting of what it is and what to do about it, and if there's anything that can be done about it. And then there are other people, uh, also described uh, uh, therein, who uh, are power hungry, uh, for lack of uh, uh, you know a, a better uh, term. And uh, they they realize that there is a economic value in grievance, and so. When I was younger and I was getting into my sort of uh, intellectual phase of my life, I sort of made a pledge to myself that I would never speak on race issues publicly. So this is just an aberration for me to find myself in this situation where this is the first time that I'm actually appearing in public to speak about anything on a stage uh, 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 such, uh, uh, such as yours. And uh, it, it was specifically because I, I see this trap for most intellectual Black people, right? And it's uh, this... Uh, the sirens of black authenticity, uh, where uh, uh, if you're a smart black person, you're sort of beholden to your community to use that intellect only towards saying something about race issues. And you see very few uh, 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 intelligent black people escape uh, the sort of gravity of, uh, of this beckoning, right? Um, and I think that's a problem. I think that uh, black intellectuals uh, probably need uh, uh, to take a, a, a reckoning of their own uh, sort of uh, contributions to society and say, let's talk about some other things. But insofar as there are people uh, who are in this arena 
And they're doing these things where uh, they just keep on dragging the issues of the past back to the fore. Uh, and they're not talking about how to move forward. They're just harping on what happened and, uh, and who did what to who and this whole exchange of grievance. And uh, it, it becomes very, very toxic. Uh, and I think there's a place in, uh, for conversations of that nature. Uh, I think that there are certain people who are worth listening to when it does come to uh, uh, speaking about those things. Uh, I think Glenn Lowry is uh, especially uh, uh, credible uh, uh, with the way he uses his voice when he speaks on these issues. Uh, and uh, But there are other people who, for me, coming from the community that I come from and understanding uh, a certain cadence in speaking that is sort of uh, uh, pastoral, uh, not pastoral, but uh, you know, uh, speaking in, in the cadence of a preacher. Uh, and it, it's condescending and it's manipulative. And uh, you, you can sort of tell these folks when you see them, right? You, you sort of know uh, uh, who is really trying to have a conversation and who's trying to uh, create a platform for themselves to uh, become a demagogue of racial issues, right? Uh, Right, exactly. There's a there's def you. I definitely understand what you're saying, and I, I think anybody who's watching and has any history with TV and media yeah. and how this has been going on for a very long time. And again, some of these voices go back. And um, I mean, if we're going to name names, we could talk about Jesse Jackson. We could talk about Reverend Al Sharpton. We could talk about you know activists who have been on this. For, oh yeah, Farrakhan. Oh boy, yeah. That's uh, yeah, Nation of Islam. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, when you do and the, and the troubling part about this and the reason that conversation is necessary is because there have been so many, you know, justified grievances. There have been instances where true atrocities have been committed against the black community or against black Definitely. individuals. And yet because of the nature of some of these people and the way that they grab the microphone, grab the spotlight, seem to kind of put across this idea that it's more about them than it is the issue. Yes. You know, then it gets troubling because you're like, well, I want to support this, but, you know, because it's not conversation, it's pontification. Yes. You know, and I, and there is a huge difference in those two things. So mm. you want to, again, you want to move the ball down the road, but you know, you run into this, this human frailty. It is not just a minority frailty. It's all of us. We all are, we, we all have got these ego issues and, um, power issues and things like that. Yeah. 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 Definitely. You know, so it, so it makes it, uh, it makes it difficult. And of course, when you get into something as deep as nation of Islam and some of the stuff that, you know, Farrakhan is on record as saying that it becomes pretty obvious. This is not a man who's advocating for universal human rights. And that, like, that's another uh, sort of facet of uh, the observations that were disturbing, the extent to which um, the sort of ideas and sentiments that are held within the nation of Islam are sort of seeping their way into the black community at large. I mean, I think the average black person in America figured out pretty early on in their life that they weren't going to identify with that type of uh, 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 of ideology. But now that it's being sort of uh, uh, snuck in uh, uh, through the back doors of this movement, I'm seeing more and more people paying lip service to the sort of uh, uh, rhetoric that you would hear coming from uh, uh, the Nation of Islam and Farrakhan. And uh, it, uh, it's disturbing to, the, uh, to what extent it's already infiltrated uh, the movement, along with a lot of these other pernicious ideas that 
are just legion uh, and and they are uh, uh, they're spreading. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. And that's what my concern as well. How is this, um, if I might ask, in a, on, a, on a personal level, like between your, you know, amongst your family, your friends, your, your social contacts, what do you see in here? How has this been, you know, pervading the community, so to speak? So uh, on the side of uh, my social circle that is predominantly Black, uh, I have had some knockdown drag out uh, sort of uh, uh, encounters with people who I've known my entire life who were never really uh, interested in racial issues, who were, who were never really uh, uh, very uh, interested in uh, any of this. And it, it's become sort of the de facto uh, point of conversation. And I think the thing to highlight the most is that, you know, in the current environment globally with COVID and just political upheaval uh, with China and India and uh, uh, everything that's going on, uh, this should be one of the most fearful times. I mean, I don't sort of proselytize fear in that way, but if you've ever been worried about the direction that this whole thing is going, uh, uh, this would be the time that everyone should have a little bit of worry. Uh, and in the black community, it's more like um, this rapturous sort of tone. Everyone feels like this is the greatest moment in history. Uh, I'm not encountering fear. I'm not encountering worry. I'm not encountering any sort of misgivings about where this is all going. Uh, people are sort of wrapped up in uh, uh, this uh, uh, feeling of uh, uh, destiny, almost, where they uh, they're they're not in touch with the reality of the state of the way the the world is right now. Right. Uh, uh, so I, I'll, I'll have conversations with uh, my black associates, and it is just completely about, you know, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, critical race theory and uh, 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 how uh, uh, they are so happy that someone has finally, finally put in the words a way to solidify the, uh, that white people are all racist and they've done this Kafka trap uh, that guarantees that no matter which way uh, they try to push back, you as a Black person have unlimited ammo to completely denigrate and, uh, uh, and disregard uh, any arguments that they have. It's. Uh, I, I remember. I, I think I, I was watching a podcast with uh, Benjamin Boyce and uh, Coleman Hughes, where Coleman Hughes sort of uh, uh, talks about how this is like getting a superpower, a social superpower, right? Where uh, uh, you have all of these uh, uh, concepts that have, uh, uh, that are propping up your moral superiority, but not just that. They they're actually tools that you can actively actively use in social interactions to just command. A, a sort of social power that um, is, I imagine, I don't use it. I'd imagine it's intoxicating after feeling disenfranchised and walked over and everything. You're suddenly given this uh, segment of society who has had this uh, inferiority sort of uh, uh, complex almost uh, for, for decades, centuries, uh, the ability to look at the people who they saw as um, uh, uh, their oppressors and now they just can completely and utterly dominate them in the social arena, right? And I think that's what's drawing so many people to uh, uh, this, uh, even people who don't actually believe that race is the issue that it actually is. It, it would be like you know, offering people a serum that just gives them unlimited power and who's not gonna show up and, 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 and take it? And uh, I think a lot of people are being um, drawn in by the 
the, the social power uh, that is being conferred on people who are willing to take this at face value and further the narrative. And when you join into those social circles, yeah, you, uh, you, you are now part of the brotherhood. You, you, you get all of the, uh, uh, the spoils of, uh, of whatever. I don't think that there's going to be much spoils. Uh, I think that this is going in a very dark direction. And uh, what really bothers me on this side of my social uh, circle is that I don't see anybody else reflecting on that possibility. Um, on the side of my social circle that is predominantly white, uh, even since I've uh, uh, posted that thread in my DMs, people who I don't really know personally, uh, who are, I'm, uh, uh, I'm experiencing exactly what I described in that thread where um, white people who I know are terrified. Uh, uh, they are um, worried about exactly how are they supposed to represent who they really are and who they've been their entire life, uh, uh, non-racist, whatever it is, when every single one of these concepts, implicit bias, uh, uh, critical race theory, uh, white fragility, all of these things uh, uh, have been sort of concocted deliberately to cast white people in the light that they're irredeemable racially, right? Uh, on racial issues, and that's the only thing that matters now, by the way, is racial issues uh, uh, to these people. So uh, uh, you are completely irredeemable socially. And I see a, a, a lot of fear, and I think a lot of white people are actually confusing what they're afraid of as well. I think what they're scared of is they're realizing that if they keep getting pushed and pushed further back on these uh, issues, if you have to choose between being a subservient ally to the, the new black overlords, or you have to choose between uh, 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 being a proud white nationalist, I think a lot of people know that in the end, which side they would have to choose if it comes to that point. And I don't think that anybody wants to have to make that choice, but the rhetoric that's coming from uh, that side of the, uh, the, the aisle uh, on this issue is going to start making people have to choose uh, uh, which one of these worlds is better for them. And if you're only giving them these two choices, and that's what these ideas are sort of concocted to do, that it is now literally and figuratively a black and white issue, right? <laughs> uh, there are no shades of gray here for anyone to explore. This is either you are okay with being uh, uh, told what you are, despite what your personal agency and dignity uh, 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 have uh, uh, sort of created uh, for, for themselves uh, as your, your, your personal identity. Now we just get to revoke all of your deeds. We get to revoke all of that. And we just get to tell you that you are the most repugnant thing that you can possibly claim someone to be, a racist. And so there's this palpable fear uh, that uh, I, I, I uh, am getting when I'm talking to the uh, side of my social circle that's predominantly white. And uh, it's, it's well-founded. It's well-founded. Uh, I can't imagine someone looking at me and telling me that I was a racist. And then I say, well, no, you know, I, I, I have this, this, this. No, no, no. It's just because you're biologically programmed to be that way. And there's nothing you can do about it. Wait, wait, wait. You know, uh, and I think that this is going to be a defining sort of uh, uh, issue when it comes to these race things. Is there a way to convince the Black Lives Matter uh, anti-racist movement that this is a non-starter, right? Uh, if if you're going to be willing to uh, uh, think openly and amend any one of these single ideas that you're sort of uh, putting forth uh, in the anti-racism, it has to be this notion that 
all, all white people are racist. Only white people can be racist. Black people are not capable of racism. Um, this is probably uh, more than any other uh, one of these uh, concepts, the one that will mar our society and um, irreversible racial tension for the foreseeable future. Um, and if, if there's not an armistice that can be found, uh, a, a truce that can be made where we just all agree, okay, we're going to take this and set it away. Maybe the other ones, uh, but uh, for me, th that's the one that I'm witnessing on the white spectrum of uh, my uh, associates that is uh, being claimed to radicalize a lot of uh, white people who have never been racist. They're like, well, if you're going to tell me I'm racist and there's nothing I can do about it, and then you're going to persecute me for that. And I, I can lose my job for arguing with you that I'm not racist. Then I'm just going to go and I'm going to get with the people who are welcoming me and saying, come on. Yeah, you're, come on our side. And uh, I think that that's what we're going to start witnessing is a lot more white people are just going to get fed up with uh, uh, having their integrity dictated to them. And uh, they're, uh, they're, going to, they're going to be pushed into identifying more closely with uh, 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 the far right than they are the far left. And that's a scenario that ends poorly for everyone. Yeah, I could not agree with you more about that. I, in fact, I think that's a brilliant analysis of exactly what's going on right now and exactly my concerns about it as well. Because of, as I've said before, you know, I want this to happen and I see that roadblocks are being put in the way to making it happen. And what I mean by it is, you know, equal rights, right? Let's yes, have, yes, yes, uh, definitely. You know, and, um, and instead what we have is this sort of this divisive, and I keep referring to it as an ideology. Um, I don't know a better word to use. I mean, a belief set, you know, I guess I could also call it, um, you know, this sort of academic ideological core of the movement, which consists mm -hmm. of critical race theory, white fragility, um, you know, even as, as you listed out in your, you know, the intersectionality, implicit bias. And it's an instance where you take, you know, we have rightfully accused the right of using science in a biased racial way mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, further racist statements about, say, IQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's been studies done and then they get twisted and then, you know, and the right is, is has used, the, the extreme right has used this stuff in really nasty ways. Well, I think this is a way that the left is using this extreme, you know, this extreme end of it. Uh, with implicit bias, you take a scientific truth. We well, are all I, I would stop you there. Um, the uh, uh, the actual pioneers of the, uh, the very concept of implicit bias were um, Anthony Greenwald and uh, Mahari, uh, Mazarin Banaji, I believe, are the names. Uh -huh. um, uh, uh, they have since, uh, you know, after a long history of uh, experimentation, basically uh, uh, acknowledged that this is a failed hypothesis. Uh, that implicit bias is not replicable in, in the lab. Uh, people who take the test more than once have wildly different scores. Uh, there's a lot of reason to even call into question the scientific value uh, uh, or, or statistical or any value of the concept of implicit bias, right? So um, it, 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 this is what I was talking about when I said uh, it, it, a lot of this is based on lies and falsehoods. So I think any academic, I'm not an academic at all, and somehow I know this, you know, <laughs> and uh, I think that any academic who is pretending that uh, they know that much about implicit bias, but they haven't heard that even the people who, uh, uh, who sort of created the very concept and, and put it through experimentation and trials uh, are now calling it basically uh, a, a failed hypothesis. But this is what you're sort of underpinning your uh, 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 ideology with in this movement. This is one of the core tenets of 
uh, what you're using to uh, uh, sort of justify uh, the sort of rhetoric that's uh, being uh, heard. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are unaware uh, that this is actually not even a scientific. Tr- it's not taken seriously by anybody in the in, in, in the world of science. So um, uh, yeah, that's that's a misnomer that needs to be corrected immediately, and that's why I'm so uh, adamant that this is just nonsense because I actually know that it is. Right. It's a little bit like knowing that um, I'm forgetting the guy named Andrew. Oh, Andrew Wakefield, I think. The guy who started the whole anti-vax thing with by mm. publishing some paper that was total horseshit about how you know vaccines were causing autism. Well, everybody took that message and ran with it. The Jenny McCarthy's of the world took that message and ran with it, got it on a public platform, started scaring the hell out of everybody, and started what is now known as this anti-vax movement, which yes. just will not die. I know. And even though Andrew Wakefield himself has been shown up to be a fraud, the paper was pulled, it's not true, that's never been real, but they won't let it go because once the you know ideas are bulletproof, they just will not surrender to facts that way. Yeah. And, and that that is a good demonstration of actual bias, that, that the way we can twist our minds into this. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, you know, what you just talked about in terms of the implicit bias thing, because I, I, I get where that's going. Um, I have said for a long time, you know, that we have, um, you know, we have viewpoints, we have ideas that we develop because of culture, language, education, upbringing, socioeconomic status, you know, these are all choices we were never asked to make. They were just made for us. And here's, Ooh. you know, here's your socioeconomic lottery. Here, yeah, yeah, here, yeah. Here's your race lottery. Here's your gender lottery, right? You, you toss the dice, man. You don't know what you were going to be. Exactly. And here you are. And so you're going to view the world through the lens of those things because you never had a choice otherwise. And, and we can call that bias. We can call it whatever we want, but it's, it's just views. It's different viewpoints. We have lots and lots and lots of them and they clash and they, they agree and all of that. And this is the push and pull of human society. And that's a normal thing. And what and my one of my biggest bones of contention with this is that they take a perfectly normal thing. And I'm not saying hate is a normal thing. I'm saying that differing views about things are is a normal thing. And we take that and then we that we villainize it. We we make it that that is something that is somehow you're doing on purpose. Or even if it's not something you're doing on purpose, you'll never be able to compensate for it. You'll never be able to overcome it. You're just a fill-in-the-blank, racist, yes. bigot, sexist, misogynist, whatever you know the the flavor of the of the month is in terms of social justice. So, so that's my problem with it: is twisting this around and making it you know to villainize people because of really the fact that they're human. And, you know, our systems are efforts to compensate for our human frailties. We have them. We got tons of human frailties. You know, we have prejudices, biases, you know, we discriminate incorrectly. But all of those are built, are are sort of the, um, you know, where extremism is the flip side of critical thinking, opposite ends of the same coin. You know, the nasty stuff is the opposite end of the ability to discern the ability to categorize, the ability to see differences and similarities in things. And, and when we make that into the, you know, the enemy, when we make that into the, the reason why people are awful to each other and, and, and all of that, 
then we sort of are just creating a problem that has no solution whatsoever because we can't change how we are, how we think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, this is just a little bit of my, uh, my own thinking. Uh, I think what really is uh, underneath all of the layers of this is a, uh, a, a fact in my opinion that basically everyone on the planet uh, holds these erroneous beliefs about belief itself, right? So um, most everyone who you meet, um, they, I, they're identified with their beliefs. Their beliefs are a part of their identity. And I'm, maybe even you believe that you choose to believe the things that you believe. And this is just, it doesn't hold water scientifically. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look at uh, the way that belief works, beliefs just happen to you. You encounter information and you're either convinced by it or you're not. Usually, the act of identifying with a, a, a piece of information is pleasurable, and you want to identify with it because it fits into the milieu of, uh, uh, of the rest of the things that you believe. But if you pay attention to the actual uh, neuroscience of belief, uh, it, it's much more like an emotion than it is anything else. It's not a thought or an idea. It is a thing that happens to you instantaneously when you encounter information. So uh, a lot of people believe that they're in control of their beliefs. And this gives us this idea that we can blame people for the things that they do and the things that they believe. But in reality, uh, if you were in control of your beliefs, my name is Adrian, right? So this is an easy exercise to show people how utterly out of your control your beliefs are. You could control what you believe. Believe that my name is Chris right now. Just go ahead and change your belief. And you'll find that you just can't do it. So I, I think one of the things that uh, would really go a long way to helping people find that road to compassion and empathy for people who they disagree with is understanding that these are people who uh, encountered information and for uh, no fault of their own, they were convinced by uh, uh, something or they weren't. And uh, the only thing that can counter that is better information. Uh, and we have the obligation uh, to interact with the people we disagree with in such a way uh, that we're giving them the opportunity to encounter information that will hopefully be more convincing. And uh, uh, that is really the only solution to, uh, I think, that conversation. But obviously, you know, one of the, uh, the problems with the far left is they are villainizing free speech. Uh, and you, uh, any sort of uh, uh, debate is not uh, welcome. But insofar as we can overcome that, uh, I think conversation will be the only solution uh, uh, available to sort of uh, resolving these, this chasm of belief that uh, exists between these two sides. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I want to I want to interrogate what you just said a little bit more because it sounds like what you just said was a pretty really good description of implicit bias. And so I want to clarify a little bit because I don't think that that's what you meant to do. No, no, no. So implicit bias is this uh, notion that uh, you have uh, uh, in regard to, uh, especially race. Uh, implicit bias is this concept that uh, before you cognitively interact with a stimulus, right? before uh, you have the opportunity to have your uh, social conditioning kick in or anything, that you are immediately and irrevocably uh, uh, biased towards a certain strain of thinking with concern to a race or a sex or uh, whatever it be. And uh, there's nothing that you can do to overcome it because it exists previous to uh, uh, your ability to do anything about it, right? And in a certain way, that is how beliefs do work, right? But a belief isn't a... Uh, it's not the same as a bias in, in, in the respect that it is, 
it's more it's more concrete in a way. Uh, so let, let me give you an example. Uh, so what they're trying to say is, you see me, and I've got on a beanie and a hoodie, kidney fees, whatever. And before you can do anything about what you think about me, you're going to draw associations that you have no control over. Uh, that, in a certain way, uh, is very true, uh, uh, but it's also not to the extent that they claim it to be true, right? When it comes to uh, implicit bias. Uh, in other words, you could potentially do something about that idea. And the idea with implicit bias is there really isn't anything you can do about it. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, your, your, your beliefs are uh, subject to uh, uh, inspection. And as long as there's more information that you can encounter that can alter those, they, uh, you can no longer be a Scientologist. You can believe that uh, 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 evolution is true. There are so many different things that can happen in the realm of belief, but implicit bias is this. Uh, yeah, it's something that uh, 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 is not up for inspection or interrogation. Exactly. And, it, it, and it, it will always be that way. Right? That's, that's right. And, and, that's, and that's a really important clarification because... Ooh, thank uh, you for that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Because I want to make sure everybody's on the same page with us because I believe we're on the same page on this and I want to be clear about it. That Because um, this is one of the pillars on which this whole everybody's a racist thing rests. And it's, and it's really important that this be understood because, um, because there are, you know, lots and lots of thoughts you have that you don't choose, quote unquote, to have. You know, we all have that. We, you know, we look at people, we think things and we go, man, thank God my thoughts don't have a bullhorn, right? Um, but you can do something about that. There is no thing that's going on in your brain that you can't retrain over time, given, you know, given an, a dedicated effort to do it. Definitely. And, and that's, the, that's, where we cro- that's where we sort of part ways with the implicit bias crowd where they're like, oh, no. There's nothing you can do about that. Our systems create it. You are born into that system. And because of your skin color, you have these privileges or you have these things. And therefore, you know, your socioeconomic status doesn't matter. Your location doesn't matter. Your language doesn't, you know, if this is where you were born or this is what your skin color is, then this is how it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, very black and white thinking, you know, and it's, and actually the subtleties of our brains are very, very different from that so yeah because i used to be hardcore scientologist you used to believe in bigfoot you know and we get get argued out of it right we don't have those beliefs anymore so clearly beliefs do surrender to our power of choice but it's not necessarily just like that it's not like oh i don't want to believe in god anymore boom i don't believe in god right it doesn't it doesn't quite work that easily yeah Sometimes it takes some work, you know, and some of the deep seated beliefs that people are raised with, these are the implicit, when I've talked about implicit bias, that's how I've talked about it is, look, you are indoctrinated to believe certain things as a kid, and it can take a lot of work to overcome that. But I've never had the idea that you can't overcome it. Yeah, this crowd does. And that's the difference here. And that's where the science gets skewed and twisted. And I think, like you said, the guys who even came up with the idea went, hey, 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 that's not, no, 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 that's not, that's not how this works. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't doubt that there's something uh, in our reality that uh, uh, sort of seems like implicit bias, but mm-hmm. it's not to the extent or in the fashion that uh, it's been claimed in the, uh, the literature that's sort of being used to prop up 
what, yeah, uh, there's definitely a uh, uh, sort of in, inherent uh, innate reactions that we have to certain stimulus. Uh, that, that, that's a given. But to, to the extent that uh, uh, they claim, I just don't see how, uh, uh, how anybody can still be taking it seriously. Exactly. And that's where the science gets off the rails. And that's where, again, one of these pillars has a lot of, a lot of cracks and, and holes in it. And really, it's, it, it's, it's built on, it, it's more of toothpick. It's not really a pillar. It's more like a, you know, it's really pretty weak. Uh, but yeah. it's presented in language that makes it appear to be an incredibly strong argument. And I think, and I, I'm kind of curious about your take on this from your experience, both with the white and black communities and your social circles, you know, one of the things I've noticed, uh, and I'm sure you have too, is that sometimes the biggest hypocrites are the ones who are speaking the loudest. We see this with politicians uh, with the anti-gay rhetoric. Um, politicians, you know, who, uh, you know, there, you know, there's, you know, it's, 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 it's. Uh, Next thing you know, they're in a, a airport, uh, airport stall uh, playing footsie with a, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then they get caught with the altar boy. Right. Or they yeah. get caught in the hotel room and they're and they're diddling 15 year olds. Right. And you're just like, Ooh. oh, my God, of course, it's so common. It's become its own stereotype. It's its own trope now. You know, when you Ooh. see politicians like going on at a mad raid or or even, you know, certain uh, men of God, so to speak, uh, now that the whole Catholic Church thing is is has been laid bare. You see that some of the most, you know, vocal proponents even extreme proponents of of certain issues um, are actually just the ones who are most guilty of it. And I bring this up because Robin DiAngelo, Ooh. author of this book, White Fragility, right, where she basically claims in the book or basically states in the book outright, describes in detail uh, how racist she is, you know, how she can't, it's impossible for her to go into a room and not see and not be aware and freak out and have all these reactions, which I've never had. I mean, I, I grew up in a black community. I, I don't have a, you know what I mean? It's not, that's not the first thing on my mind and it's the first thing on her mind. And so I think to myself, well, that's interesting. She's sort of projecting that on everybody. And I wonder that the most vocal, proponents of this and the and the, from the white crowd are perhaps in a similar headspace you know and because of that guilt and feeling like they are guilty because of that because they know it's kind of wrong but they can't help her you know they then project that out onto everybody else and then become this sort of you know screaming hypocrite um, what do you think about that do you think that has any yeah uh, i mean Definitely. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I, I just sit and marvel uh, that uh, there's this person who is, like you said, in her own literature, describing the extent of her racism, and she's being taken seriously uh, as uh, a, a, a thinker in anti-racism. Uh, and I, 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 there's something masochistic uh, uh, in that, uh, that... <laughs> uh, I, I don't have the uh, the credentials to really uh, delve into, uh, but I, I do think that um, uh, there is a sort of uh, uh, projecting uh, of psychology when you encounter these people and uh, the allies who are uh, so desperate to prove that they're uh, that so people too in a certain uh, way. So the one thing that you find in the black community is. Uh, uh, well, certain black communities. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, uh, throw a, a blanket over uh, uh, all of it. 
but uh, uh, in a lot of my personal experiences, which were wide and varying, I, I you know I went to probably forty to sixty different schools uh, when I was raised in foster care. Uh, I lived in over two hundred places by the time I was twenty four. Uh, so I, I, I mean I, I'm sort of a a representative sample all in one when it comes to uh, uh, black communities a- around the nation, uh, and uh, you'll find that uh, you're you're told uh, by black people what you're allowed to be as black. They'll say uh, black people don't swim, black people don't wear tight jeans, black people don't do... So there's these limitations uh, that are projected by the Black community onto the Black community as well. Uh, and I think it's sort of like the inverse of that, where uh, uh, white, uh, these white people are uh, sort of... They have this psychological block where uh, they're terrified of their own uh, uh, biases. And to a certain extent, you would almost have to say that that, that almost... it. it it's almost laudable that they're that, that the struggle is happening internally that they're trying to come to terms with this but to the extent that they're uh, uh, making their own psychology uh, 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 this loudspeaker of uh, 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 of confusion that's sort of uh, uh, seeping its way into other people's brains they should probably keep it to themselves <laughs> Yeah, I think I agree with you on that one. (laughs) There's nothing more vocal. There's no one more vocal than the recently converted, right? Right. Nobody worse than the guy who just quit smoking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? (laughs) I mean, again, it's just basic human psychology. This really has nothing to do with race as a subject. It just happens to be that it's on the topic of race that this is all, you know, so contentious. But it's really just, it's just really human psychology, you know? Yeah. Um. Man, man, I thought, you know, the thing that actually was the biggest red flag for me, the thing that, that came up, and this, again, I think this is about a year and a half, two years ago, it was before all this stuff, this stuff that's going on now, which first woke me, first made me aware of this idea of critical race theory as a thing. Yes. Be, way before I talked to James Lindsay about it, it was when I saw, I think it was on Twitter, that most wonderful of all platforms for nuance and, and fair discussion. <laughs> Um, that it was impossible for a minority to be racist. racist. Yeah. And that was the first thing that I, that really set off alarm bells in my head because I went, whoa, 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 wait a second, what? And yeah. that's when I, and then I, in, in trying to figure out why somebody would say that and come to believe that, it became clear that the, that racism as a term had been redefined in critical race theory to be, framed in terms of power structures rather than, you know, differences of opinion or, or ideas about skin color or quote unquote race, which is yeah. itself an entirely, really a kind of a false concept. There is no scientific basis for, for, for race as such. There's ethnicity, there are different body types depending on environment, but, and we call that race, but it's, you know, it's, it's really a bit of a faux concept. So I'm curious your views on that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I still remember the first time that I encountered uh, this. I was uh, was taking a class uh, and uh, the professor actually uh, said this out loud that, uh, you know, uh, race is uh, uh, an equation where uh, it's a matter of hierarchical uh, 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 gradations of power and only the people at the top can be racial uh, uh, ra- racist towards the people beneath them. And I was like, where are you even coming from with this? Because, you know, uh, it's not something that I'm proud of, but uh, I had uh, some bad experiences when I was younger uh, with uh, the Mexican community. 
And I was basically racist against Mexicans uh, 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 well into my teens. It was just this one guy uh, assaulted my sister with a baseball bat. And from then on, on principle, we just didn't like Mexicans. Uh, and it, it was it was a, a very racist ad, until I was exposed to other Mexicans, and I just naturally had that instinct or that impulse sort of uh, 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 conditioned out of me. Uh, I, I personally held racist views against Mexicans for a long time, so th- that experience automatically told me that okay, this is false. Uh, I know that I've been racist before. I know it was something that I had to work through. It's something that uh, uh, was a part of my uh, uh, internal life for a, a while. So you're telling me that my internal life is false, that this isn't something that I could have experienced, that uh, uh, you're a better judge of what is possible for me than I am. And uh, uh, that's not necessarily the, the, the best uh, way to explain this, but uh, uh, I think that the notion that racism has something to do with power, and to a further extent, the uh, campaign to have this uh, uh, popularized as the, 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 new, the new definition of racism. Uh, it, it, it hints at more orchestration in this uh, 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 than uh, I think a lot of people are allowing for, uh, right? This, uh, uh, this is, um, yeah, this is cultural warfare, uh, to, for lack of a better word. Uh, and uh, racism is simply, for, or for me, and I hope for everyone else uh, uh, who, who, uh, uh, who is listening to this, uh, uh, it's just having hatred or uh, or a feeling of superiority uh, towards uh, uh, another person or group of people based on race. And anyone who has a feeling of hatred or a sense of superiority over another group based on race, you, regardless of your pigmentation, regardless of uh, uh, you know your uh, the your uh, <laughs> genetic makeup, uh, uh, how you re- uh, how you sort of outwardly present phenotypically. Uh, you're a racist if you have that sentiment towards another person uh, or group of people based on their skin, their skin color specifically. Uh, and uh, I don't think that we can afford to budge on that. Um, allowing racism to be redefined uh, in such a way that uh, it, it no longer, because definitions aren't just about what people want them to be. Uh, the uh, meaning uh, is, uh, it's what is reflected objectively in reality. And definitions are attempts to put those observations into some sort of a linguistic pattern that best rides the rails of that reality uh, uh, the way that it's observed, right? And if you can find one example where that definition is falsified, for example, my example where I was racist, uh, that undermines the credibility of that definition start to finish. And um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, there's a lot of preemptive attacks uh, 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 like this whole thing with Steven Pinker, you know, trying to uh, Steven Pinker, for example, uh, I've uh, I've long admired his work. Uh, I think that he is truly uh, if such a thing as a a polymath exists, he's as close as we've got uh, uh, for a while on that. Uh, And uh, they're preemptively going after Steven Pinker. And this just sort of exposes the sort of uh, uh, guerrilla warfare nature of what's happening. Because Steven Pinker is, if you wanted to think about, say you're, you know, critical race theorist, Steven Pinker would be what you would want to see in a white person, right? Just liberal values, uh, 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 dedicated to science, uh, everything that you can imagine that you would want to see from a a person on that side of uh, the race aisle. 
sorry. Uh, uh, Steven Pinker <laughs> is like the the greatest representative of what you would want to see from the uh, uh, from the uh, from white people uh, uh, insofar as uh, uh, values go. And they're going after him, uh, trying to cancel him because of his attachment to science. And now that science has been dubbed a uh, a pillar of white supremacy, uh, that gives them license to try to say that his connection to that is a, a good enough reason to go after him and try to have him canceled. It's patently nonsensical. And the fact of the matter is, you can tell that uh, this is some sort of preemptive strike to silence potential opposition. And if you, like, if you, if, you, if you sat down and you wrote a list of the people who were going to have voices uh, with enough power and clout to uh, uh, really undermine your message, he would be at the top of the list. And it, it almost seems uh, as though this, these are coordinated strikes against certain individuals who they don't want to pick up the torch against them uh, in a certain way. Uh, and that's terrifying. I agree. And I, I, I wanted to, um, to ask you about this and you, and you went right into it. So I'll bring this up now, which is a concept I learned, the, the, the concept I learned while I was in Scientology. And the reason I learned it is because L. Ron Hubbard wrote a policy letter, which is official church instructions Ooh. for how to do this. And, the, and it's very Orwellian. And it comes, the, the, the root concept, I believe, comes from Orwell's analysis of propaganda. And it's a tool of propaganda, and it's called propaganda by redefinition of terms. Yes. Right? It's a calculated thing. It's immediately yes. obvious, you know, what we're talking about. It's a, it's a great way of describing it, right? It's literally the title of the policy letter Hubbard wrote. Ooh. And he said, you know, we can take advantage of this, for example, by redefining psychiatry, which Scientology hates as this barbaric atrocity against humanity. And everything psychiatry does is a barbaric atrocity against humanity. And so you frame everything you talk about with psychiatry in that way, and you have redefined in the public's mind that psychiatry is now this, you know, atrocity against humanity. Scientology loves doing that. They've been working on it for decades. They, they're, they're pathetically ineffective at it. But the tool is very effective. And yes, it, it goes back to, again, Orwell himself talked about this, said, hey, man, this, this, this is what people, you know, the freedom equals slavery, ignorance is strength, et cetera. You redefine these terms. And I believe that racism was calculatedly redefined this way. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of mind reading and saying that. It could have Ooh. been an honest effort on the part of the critical race theorist academics who did this. But it seems that it does provide them with the ability, as you said, and has been noted by others, uh, of, of, of creating an inarguable position. No matter how you come at this definition of racism as this power structure thing, they can always cut you off at the knees somehow. They've always got yeah. some answer. And this has been, this has been a, a, a dedicated effort for decades. This is not new. But, you know, people don't seem to understand this goes back to the 60s. I mean, this goes back to, yeah. you know, postmodernist thinking and, and it's where it kind of comes out of and, and all of and it. And it's really a shame too, because there are elements of postmodernism that are not bad, but it's being painted with this big broad brush of awfulness because it's being corrupted and turned into this awful thing. And this is an example of it. So yeah. I'm kind of curious about your experience with that or your views on what I just said, though, because I, 
I'm sort of pontificating a little bit. What do you think? <laughs> no, I think you, uh, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, there, there are countless examples, sort of prescient examples from, you know, Orwell, uh, in 1984 and, uh, uh, double speak and all of that, uh, uh, sort of thing where, uh, we understand the power of language. Uh, uh, we understand that if limit the expression of ideas by limiting um, the expression of how they can be propagated, uh, uh, you sort of uh, have a, a, a checkmate from the beginning, right? So if if you can get people to put stock in your definition of you know uh, uh, race as this uh, uh, dynamic of power. Um, and that's just the way they've encountered this definition and they haven't seen any uh, uh, other version of it, then you've already won uh, real estate in their mind, right? Where uh, this is just what the information that they have to work with, going back to you just encounter information and a belief forms one way or the other. Uh, uh, and for uh, the, the age of people who they are targeting with uh, uh, these sort of uh, uh, revisions, the revision is sort of uh, linguistic, uh, these are people who are uh, college freshmen, high school uh, seniors, uh, who this is their first experience uh, with uh, 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 those thoughts. And if that is how they're being introduced into the world of thinking about racism, then that definition will then go on to inform every other thought that they have about race. And insofar as it limits them in their ability to think critically about those other things, because this is the, the definition of race and this is what you have to work with it really does sort of hobble you intellectually uh, in a way that prevents you from being able to think uh, 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 until you encounter better information. Uh, and who knows if by that point you're open to it, you know, uh, the, the indoctrination can be strong. And what, that's what we're seeing. Uh, uh, you were calling it uh, an ideology. And I, I think that uh, it, these tenets, uh, insofar as they're coalescing into uh, a singular sort of uh, worldview, it's, it's more dogma than anything. Uh, 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 these are becoming dogma. Uh, they are becoming uh, 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 things uh, that are not allowed to be questioned. You must believe this uh, on the merit of the fact that I've told you to believe it. Uh, and uh, any opposition or uh, 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 or thought outside of that arena, uh, that that box uh, is heresy, so to speak. And uh, I, I think that. Um, the attempt to redefine, uh, what was it that you said? I, I need to remember this. Propaganda the, uh, by redefinition of terms. Propaganda by re redefinition of terms. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, insofar as it relates to what we're witnessing uh, uh, in America right now uh, with the race relations, uh, uh, it, it, it really does seem that they are formulating their own uh, tenets of dogma, and uh, uh, it's very effective. Yeah, exactly. And it's very and it's very much uh, in the realm of pseudoscience, which we have to we have to be clear about because, you know, science is always the, the you know, we go science and you go faith or religion. And we're and I think dogma is a great word to bring into this because it brings the religious aspect of this uh, to the forefront, which is kind of important right now because ideas that are accepted without evidence, uh, by definition, are, are faith-based ideas, you know? And I, I tried to make that argument early on with this idea that, you know, everybody's racist. I said, that's a faith-based idea. You can't prove that. How do, you, how do you go about proving that, you know? Yeah. 
And it's just accepted. And I've actually gotten into... Um, it's interesting to me. I wanted to ask you about this as a, as a Black man, because I'm, I'm curious about your take on this. But I, from my experience, I've gotten into way more arguments about this with white people than I have with black people. <laughs> I live, and it, this is strange because I live in Kentucky. Kentucky is uh, stereotyped nationally as, you know, just the the last, uh, uh, <laughs> <It is. laughs> the last. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you got Mitch McConnell, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, Sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All of Kentucky thanks you uh, for, uh, uh, for your condolences. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's it's been really surreal to see the extent to which these ideas have not really uh, vitiated the white community in Kentucky yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think I think it might be because the population of uh, minorities here isn't enough to where they feel threatened in their position. Uh, uh, insofar as there is a position to uh, uh, to have, uh, uh, I, I don't know exactly how to explain the phenomenon. But when I talk to uh, white people who actually live in Kentucky, uh, I have friends nationally who I, I stay in touch with. But people who I speak to in Kentucky who are white, they have no idea that any of this is going on for the most part. Uh, uh, this is uh, 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 this is not mainstream in, in Kentucky yet. Uh, uh, in the black community, it's taken root. It is taking root. Uh, but uh, the, the white community, uh, typically the conversations that I, that I have with them, I'm the first person who's telling them about these ideas of uh, you know where this is coming. They're hearing people say all white people are racist, and, and it just sounds like race baiting and, and, and obnoxious rhetoric, they don't understand that there are uh, um, sort of academic, uh, pseudo-academic uh, underpinnings uh, that, that are sort of carrying these things to the surface. Uh, but yeah, I, I haven't had uh, a lot of resistance uh, from, uh, from white people on, uh, on either side of it. I don't see a lot of white people in my life uh, defending the Black Lives Matter uh, movements or uh, uh, these ideologies or, or dogmas. And uh, I don't see a lot of them uh, um, really having a position against it. Uh, all they're seeing is the surface uh, uh, of the movement and the sort of rhetoric that's uh, uh, going on uh, at, at the surface. And they're uh, alarmed by that. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, uh, I haven't seen a lot of engagement with the ideas themselves on, on the white side. Uh, but yeah, I've had some... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. Well, I what I'm running into is a is an is an adamant refusal to even believe that there is something deeper, yeah, than the surface level stuff, right? You 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 know, I'm I'm critical of Black Lives Matter, therefore, fill in the blank, right? It's it, it's that the equation really doesn't go deeper than that. And yeah. if you if you happen to say or push back in any way on any part of it you're the bad guy, right? You're the racist or whatever. And it, and it, again, shows the, you know, the sort of us versus them, black and white thinking of the whole thing. But um, they don't see it that way, you know? And, and the righteous won't. That's the thing about being righteous is it's not just about being right. It's about being righteous. You know, yeah. you are justified in your cause and you're justified in mowing down the opposition. And I, Steven Pinker, actually, I'm glad you brought him up because I was going to bring him up. As, uh, he actually, um, there's this great little video circulated on Twitter this morning of, of him saying that, you know, there's an even more fundamental problem here, way, you know, way beyond even this racial issue, which is the, the way the world gets framed to people in schools now, in academia, in colleges specifically. I think we see this more than we do at the, at the grade school level. 
And that is that the world is a battleground, that there's a war going on all the time and you have to choose sides. And the war is the, uh, the oppressors versus the oppressed that, who are personified by the white elites, uh, the 1%, right? You can put this in socioeconomic terms. You can put it in gender terms, white cis males. You can put, you know, you can put it in racial terms, white guys, you know, it always seems to come to this common enemy. In other words, the holders of, of perceived power, that there's power versus those who don't have power. And this is, this is all, I mean, so this, this, this kind of ideological foundation is being utilized, not just in race relations, but gender relations, sexuality, you know, kind of across the boards. And, um, and it's a way of framing the world. And I think that's where we are really running into trouble with this, you know, where it used to be, I think, not to get all conservative, you know, the good old days. <laughs> I hate that because, you know, because it's not like the good old days were that great. But, uh, but this sort of new thinking that's been going on for about the last 50 years, I guess, in academia um, is sort of pushing this, you know, even the whole thing, even the whole concept of narratives. You know, in 1920, nobody was talking about narratives. That that wasn't a thing. You know, that's a postmodernist concept that that, that yeah. the world should be viewed this way, at least as I understand it. So, um, so I think we have a more, you know, an even more fundamental problem here that we're having to sort of push back and fight against, which is people's worldviews have been shaped into the idea that they are soldiers in a battle, and and we're constantly at war, and and so the language reflects that. The, the framing of issues reflects that. The divisiveness of our culture is us versus them rather than, hey, we're all in this together and we've got some problems and why don't we figure them out? You know, like if you're in a family, you don't just go to war because you have a disagreement about something, but you do now. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 Thanksgiving yeah, I in Trump land, right? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, no, that's... Uh, uh, I, I, I did catch uh, that video. I think you uh, retweeted it uh, yeah. before before we uh, started the podcast, and I, I I looked at it. And as always, you know, uh, Stephen Pinker was very eloquent and uh, uh, very correct. Um, I think at the heart of the thread that I wrote that uh, got a little bit of attention uh, that that was my chief worry was the way that um, I'm noticing. Uh, this is becoming something that we're going to be entrenched in uh, and possibly for a long time. Uh, this idea that uh, minorities are at war with uh, their oppressors in America uh, and that, uh, uh, you know, as I said before, uh, uh, how it's becoming uh, common to think that white people are irredeemable on uh, the terms of race. Um, I'm going to flirt with a little bit of controversy here. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure if this is going to come off the way that it's sounding in my head. But uh, when I think about the ability to believe that this is the case, the ability for uh, uh, people of color, minorities, however you want to uh, 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 deem them, uh, to actually think that this is a real dichotomy that exists. Uh, so you just rewind the clock back far enough uh, to uh, abolitionist times. And it's like, did, did black people fight for their freedom? And this is going to sound a little bit nasty, but when, uh, when you look at the cold, hard facts of the situation, uh, black people might have 
insofar as they had the, the ability to speak out done that. But if there weren't enough good white people, anti-racist white people, anti-slavery white people, we would still be slaves. So if there wasn't a significant population in this country who was against all of these things, who are white people, then we wouldn't even have the freedom to be having this conversation in the first place. And the idea that those people who got who, who worked tirelessly and fought a war to get us where we are now so that we could end that atrocity, but now suddenly all of the white people are bad? Like, I don't understand how you can hold those two. That's a cognitive dissonance that I'm not capable of, to think that uh, we are somehow beset uh, in this uh, uh, struggle with all white people. And it's, it's erroneous, uh, uh, and I find it just abhorrent. Uh, it's, it, it's difficult to understand how people can uh, uh, look at that and not understand uh, how, how wrongheaded it is just on its face. Uh, uh, we, ha- we just have to get to a point where uh, uh, people are thinking about this clear. And uh, 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 yeah, uh, this uh, uh, successor ideology, I believe, is uh, uh, what they're calling it, or successor narrative, where uh, the only way to uh, right the wrongs of society is to wrest control from uh, 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 the oppressor and, uh, uh, and oppress them, basically. Uh, uh, it's just not the way to go. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree completely. And I made a similar point in my talk with Rick last week, actually, uh, about that exact thing. I said, the way I framed it was I said, well, look, a lot of white people have died for civil rights to happen. A lot of black people, I mean, way more black people have. I'm not. This isn't even about who's better or worse. It's about Ooh. the objective fact that the bloodiest battle and war that this country has ever fought was fought over slavery. And a lot, and black people weren't even allowed to fight for the first couple of years, right? Which was really stupid. But, you know, when you really, you know, when you you look at the big picture, there have been a lot of sacrifices by all races over this issue to bring, you know, civil rights and freedom to, to people. And... I asked the question, or I framed the question in, the, in terms of, how, you know, can we acknowledge that? Or is there something wrong with acknowledging that? Is it, you know, because a lot of the rhetoric today seems to be that no progress has been made when it's very clear in the historical context that all kinds of progress has been made. Is it enough? No, shine. Let's, let's, let's push the ball down the road further. But it, by not, by failing to acknowledge that, I think you lose people. And that's, I think the point you are making, you know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't, yeah. I seeing the way that, uh, the, uh, the far left reacts to uh, uh, to criticism. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how this plays out. Uh, but I I know that, uh, representing, uh, uh, in public and, uh, uh, beating these ideas back, uh, 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 defeating them resoundingly on the, in the public arena is, probably the only hope that we have to get back to some semblance of, uh, of normalcy, uh, uh, with, with race issues. Um, yeah, <laughs> I agree, man. I do. And that's why we're talking today. Yeah. yeah, yeah so definitely. that we can push back, you know, and get on and do whatever we can. I, I hope that, you know, this is the first of many platforms you get on personally. You know, I'd like to see your voice out there and I'd like to see you with bullhorn because I think you have smart things to say. And, well, thank you. Well, you're not an academic. Hey, guess what? Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got no letters after my name. Yeah. I got nothing. I got a high school education, you know, but all of us are capable of learning and all of us are capable of talking. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. we do have to use our voices to uh, uh, to let other people know uh, that they're like-minded individuals who aren't standing for the sort of things that uh, are, are are playing out in the in the nation right now. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm 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 really glad we had an opportunity to sit and sort of hash some of this out. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for coming on my show and doing this. I I know it's difficult. And um, and it's a little nerve wracking. I'm so it used is. to it at this point that it's really that my stomach doesn't do the flippy flops, <laughs> right? But but I get it. And it's and and so I actually want to acknowledge, you know, that there was some bravery here in you coming up and doing this. And uh, you know, there's a difference between you know tweeting stuff out and just being one of you know millions of voices and then sitting in front of a camera and actually explaining yourself. So so thank you again for doing this. Well, anytime. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to. Uh, have me back on for a chat. I'm, I'm always open to it. Uh, this has been a very pleasant experience and uh, uh, I hope that it's well received. Uh, I am sure it will be. And uh, and we'll see, you know, I'm paying less and less attention to the comments that I get these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to get to a position where I'm big enough that I, I can't, I don't have the time to, to go through all the comments anyway. But um but it's, I'm also finding for my own mental health, it's, it's just best to just sort of say my piece, put it out there and, you know, let the cards fall where they may. Well, I do think there is one more thing that I've uh, probably yeah. a, a note that I would like to end on. And it's that uh, when we're talking about these things, I like to distinguish between the ideas that we're talking about and the people that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And anyone uh, who might be uh, listening to this and trying to come to terms with some of the things that I've said, uh, you'll notice that uh, I'm trying to talk about ideas and, and not just people. But the one thing that I think everyone needs to be very concerned about, if if you actually do care about uh, uh, people of color, the, uh, minorities in America, uh, you need to realize that allowing these ideas to vitiate the public conversation is the greatest harm that you can possibly be doing to the black community. Uh, allowing people to believe non-indoctrinated in the way that these things are indoctrinating people you're allowing people to exist in a state of constant conspiracy and paranoia. And if you actually care about uh, uh, the black community in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you won't abide uh, 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 this. You won't stand by while these ideas are taking over people's minds and corrupting uh, uh, their ability to think clearly. And I, I think we need to approach this from a position of compassion on that, uh, on that note that uh, these people uh, have reasons uh, uh, that they believe the things that they believe and let's attack their ideas and not attack them as people. Uh, you can be ruthless to an idea and show compassion to the person at the same time. And uh, uh, I think that you do that. And that's why when I watched your, uh, uh, your material, I was very uh, 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 happy to come on and speak with you. And I think that uh, that is a, a message that uh, anyone listening needs to really reflect on and uh, uh, come to terms with the fact that uh, we're in a war of ideas, but we're not in a war with people. Uh, uh, let's fight on this on uh, on the arena of ideas and keep it there, and uh, hopefully uh, all will go well. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Okay, and on that, I, I got nothing better to say, so <laughs> I'm wrapping up with that, uh, folks. I'm very interested, of course. In um, I sit here and say I don't read all the comments, but of course, you know I do. If I am interested in your feedback, so please do go ahead and leave it in the comments section. And also, please do, um, you know, I'd love to build this platform. I would love to have you guys, uh, well, you know, like, share, etc. The content that I'm putting up here, if you find it entertaining, interesting, and informative. 
um, then please consider supporting this channel through Patreon uh, or through PayPal as terms of one-off donations, um, because that's what keeps the lights on and keeps the show going here, as I am wont to say. And I very, very, very much appreciate your viewership and your support. So thanks for listening, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>